This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Blood. I'm a historian of military culture and war. Today, my guest is Arthur Snell, a former British Foreign Office diplomat who specialised in counterterrorism programmes. Arthur is the author of How Britain Broke the World, Greed and Blunders from Kosovo to Afghanistan, 1997 to 2022, published by Canterbury Press, 2022. This book is a remarkable examination of British foreign policy during a period of global upheaval and conflict. Arthur, welcome. Can you tell the readers why you wrote this book? Uh, Well, yes, thank you, Philip. Thank you for that kind introduction. Why did I write this book? I, um, I think the genesis of the book comes in the year 2016. I had been in the Foreign Office up until 2014, and then I I chose to pursue a different sort of career. But I'd I'd spent uh, nearly two decades in Foreign Service prior to that. And certainly by the time I left, I felt that Britain's foreign policy was running into what you might call a bit of a cul-de-sac. Uh, and then the events of 2016 happened. And, and of course, everyone knows that was the year of Brexit, but also the year of, of Trump being voted in, in in North America. And to me, they felt like a very important turning points in a history of, particularly for Britain, a country that was losing its way. That, And this is not to say that Brexit could not be a success, but certainly the way it unfolded, even, even in 2016 itself, a country that seemed to live more in fantasy than in reality, and a country whose foreign policies were were increasingly incoherent and dysfunctional. And so I, I wanted to try to write a book about the impact of Britain's foreign policy on the wider world. And, and what I found as I started to research and write was that Britain has played a role uh, in destabilizing and in undermining the global order. And I, I say this cautiously because i don't think britain set out to do that and i don't think britain has acted cynically or or in some kind of weird deliberate zero-sum fashion but it has often ended up having that impact did you find it a hard book to write 
Um, yes, I mean, the actual process of writing I, it came quite easily, which, which I've always enjoyed sort of writing reports and other things. I've, it's the first time I've written a, a full-length book. Uh, but it was hard to write, definitely, because it required me to um, to sort of tear up my uh, preconceptions. Now, some, some things I certainly felt... Um, fairly strongly about before I wrote the book and I, I don't think my view changed very much uh, for example by the time I started writing the book I was pretty clear in my own mind that the Iraq war was a disastrous mistake um, but I hadn't thought that about Kosovo I thought at the time 1999 when I'd only just joined the foreign service that it was a uh, it was the right thing to do it was um, a gesture of, of kind of humanitarian, uh, if you like, international liberalism, uh, Britain's involvement in the Kosovo War. Whereas I look at it now, and I think it's a much more complex story. I don't, I, I wouldn't put Kosovo in the same category as Iraq at all. It's certainly not um, an unmitigated disaster, but I think there is a lot of complexity in that conflict, which perhaps uh, Britain's failure to grasp with that complexity. Uh, is is in some ways uh, redolent of Britain's wider approach, which which is often to uh, to fail to grapple with um, with the complexities of international affairs and and to settle for rather simplistic concepts, which I think we we find satisfying in a kind of domestic political context, but we often don't consider the wider ramifications. And and tell me about Canon. Tell the readers about Canterbury Press. Um, yeah. They, they've produced a, a very nice book, I think, um, not just because the, the wording and the fonts make it quite comfortable to read, but the whole the whole package is well packaged together. And um, I, I find it a quite a nice, comfortable book. It's almost like old school um, hmm. academic books from the past where, you know, you just yeah, take well, well, enjoy them. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad you say that because I think yes, it's it's a it's a physically pleasant book to hold and to read, and 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 uh, as much as we, we might say these things don't matter, they do matter. So Canterbury Press is a small independent publisher based in South London. Um, it is it is it focuses on uh, what they would call high quality nonfiction. They only publish um, sort of contemporary non-fiction i would say quite a lot of their books are are fairly political but i don't mean that in a kind of party political sense um but they they grapple with modern political issues and they're quite internationalist as well so they've published interesting books for example about what's happening to the uyghurs in china they've published interesting books about um the rise of different types of social media phenomena um, across uh, across the world, and in, and in fact, they published. I think I'm right in saying the first uh, English language biography of President Zelensky, which came out last year by Stephen Derrick. So, yeah, and and I'm certainly my own experience of, of working with Cambridge has been very very pleasant, and and um, I'm glad you've uh, given me the chance to say a bit about them. Okay, if we can get on to some questions of detail. Um, yeah. So from the introduction, which is page 15 in the book, if, if you dare to refer to it, uh, since Tony Blair's first election victory in 1997, Britain has contributed to the fracturing of the global order. If Blair's practice, if Blair practiced disa uh, disabling the global order, how would you explain British foreign policy since Brexit? 
Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. The first thing I'm going to do, which is, you know, typical uh, of uh, perhaps of um, of a sort of British uh, humanities graduate is slightly question the question, because I think um, that and it, this comes back to something I said at the outset, that I think Britain has contributed in, in a significant way to uh, the fracturing of the global order. But I whether we would whether I agree that Britain has practiced, which suggests that we've done it in a in a sort of deliberate fashion, I think I think I might question that. So what, what I'm getting at here is that um and I write you know quite extensively in the book about Blair's role in the run-up to the Iraq war. Uh, I do not see Tony Blair as as a cynic and I and I don't even see him as someone who who sort of lied or, or or misled the public to make the case for war, um, and particularly the Iraq War. Uh, I think he is someone clearly driven by very strong uh, ideological beliefs, um, and he he more or less developed. I mean, not not completely alone, but was a very significant player in developing this idea of a liberal internationalism, liberal interventionism. The two sort of things going together. Um, and it is the failure of those interventions, which, I, in my view, have have um, have you know contributed to the breakdown of the global order. Now, to to answer your question, how would I explain British foreign policy since Brexit? Well, I think I think Britain has has struggled in numerous ways since Brexit to one to find its role. So we we often hear this term "global Britain." Um, I think. Uh, really quite uh, experienced and um, distinguished foreign policy commentators have struggled to find what global Britain really means beyond a um, comforting political soundbite. And the, and here's the reason uh, that, that Britain uh, cut loose from the European Union is is not a globally significant power. It is, it's a middle power. It's not an insignificant power. And one of the things I say in my book is that Britain is not insignificant. We, we shouldn't fall into this trap that some people on the left do of saying, well, it's just a little island, you know, a little a little cold island. You sort of sometimes hear those kind of framings. Um, Britain is a significant country, but I it is no longer on its own, acting on its own, a globally significant country. And I think um, one of the challenges since Brexit is is Britain trying to work out what it wants to do and how it wants to achieve that if it isn't going to be uh, part of a of a European uh, sort of conglomeration. Um, having said that, um, there have clearly been some missteps in, in our foreign policy since Brexit, most notably our ongoing relationship with the EU. And, and clearly that will always be important, whatever, whatever one thinks of the rights and wrongs of Brexit, the, the relationship with the EU, we can't ignore them. Um, but I think in some other spaces, actually, and in the biggest foreign policy question of all since Brexit, which must be the the invasion of Ukraine, uh, I think Britain's Britain's taken a a positive, uh, you know, a, has has taken a positive role. And um, I mean, I the, the the invasion was unfolding more or less as the book was being finalised. I, so I had had an op opportunity to mention it slightly, but it certainly isn't a core part of the book. Um, but I think Britain's response. Um, has is is laudable, and and I'm I'm as someone who has been very critical of my country's policy, I'm also happy to to praise it where I think that's um, justified. Do you think Britain had more influence when it was a member of the European Union? Definitely, I, I think there's no doubt about that, and the, and the the reasons are very simple. 
One, that Britain was a highly influential member of the European Union. So within that group, uh, the the framing that we somehow, um, you know, we, we were sort of ordered around by the other members, it really doesn't stand up. It doesn't stand up to a kind of qualitative analysis. Anyone who's spent time working in EU environments will know of the influence that that both British politicians were able to have at summits, but also actually within institutions. Uh, but I actually think if you look um, in a kind of quantitative way, and I know people have done this, and look at individual EU votes on you know particular items of, of regulation and, and other decisions that the EU made, uh, Britain was very rarely um, isolated or, or you know voted against or or um, you know uh, short circuited by the institutions. So so we we had a lot of influence within the EU, but also um, the EU itself is clearly a major global actor. Now, let me give a, a practical case study from my own experience as a diplomat. Uh, when I was, I was the British High Commissioner in Trinidad and Tobago, not a big country, not a terribly significant diplomatic role, but clearly one in which uh, Britain to Trinidad has an important significance, both as a former colonial power, we are obviously you know, with the, there's the Commonwealth connection. There are lots of cultural and historic connections, particularly educational connections, those sorts of things. But also in in one very significant constitutional function that the final court uh, for Trinidad and Tobago, the final court of appeal that they have is, is the Privy Council in London. So that's just to illustrate the significance of the UK to Trinidad. However, um, if we were talking about uh, aid and development, so assistance from you know wealthy Western countries to a country like Trinidad, which is albeit relatively developed, is, is still uh, clearly not in the same place as 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 sort of Western Europe. Uh, Britain, as a bilateral uh, player, no longer gave any um, aid or development assistance to Trinidad and Tobago. However, the EU continued to do so. So, as an EU head of mission. I had a role in uh, in that process, and of course, when when countries, you know, there, there's something which is a little transactional about this. When countries are involved in providing aid and development assistance, um, that gives you a level of influence, a level of access, a level of effectively um, of of sort of power, you know, on on the global stage. So that's just one example of how if you subtract Britain from that context, and and, and there will be plenty of countries in the world where that would be the case. You Britain uh, takes a um, a step back, and of course the other point is that many countries, uh, particularly in their in their trade and economic relations, they see the EU as a as a huge. Uh, significant player that they need to have a very strong relationship with and of course if if you and, and again this is comes from my own direct experience if you as britain as a representative of the british government are also in in some way representing eu interests people will seek you out because they perhaps need to lobby for access or they need to uh you know to try and try and improve some terms of trade or some other situation now britain on its own is clearly a less significant market it, it has it has less attraction to to uh, global exporters and so on so i think that there are lots of ways in which our influence has reduced since brexit and it's hard to say in ways in which our influence increases since brexit because 
the things that gave Britain, that continue to give Britain influence, we have soft power, we are still relatively significant militarily, not, not as much as we were, but we still have some punch there. Uh, we, we have other other aspects to our, you know, to our national offer, if you like, that I don't personally feel that they, any of those were diminished by our membership of the EU. So it seems to me that it's, it, it can only be in a sort of one direction that, that our influence has moved. Thank you. Um, keeping within themes within your book, uh, I'd like us to move on to Iraq, because yes. Iraq plays such a significant part in your book. Yeah. And I think I'm going to give you the hard one. Um, yes. Was it an illegal war? Well, uh, I, I will I'll very briefly give the politician's answer, which is I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> Um, but then I'm, I, I won't, I'm not going to let you, you know, uh, I won't fob you off like that. I think um, based on my best understanding of, of what, what I've read, including things like the Chilcot Inquiry, um, other, uh, other analyses, um, I, Chilcot's conclusion, and of course Chilcot was an extremely cautious, you know, retired civil servant, certainly not a rabble rouser. He, he, I, he, I think, uh, I think I'm directly quoting him saying that the the legal basis was unsatisfactory. Um, now, the for for the war to have been illegal, effectively, it, it it's the crime of aggression that that you you in you invade a sovereign country, uh, and there is no basis to to have done so. So there, there's no self defence argument, and or there's no other justification. Um, you that there is uh, there is the argument that. Um, and, and this was one that, that the British uh, government sort of tried to latch on to, which was that the prior UN Security Council resolution basically gave the cover for the war, uh, which which meant that it couldn't be illegal because the war had already been sort of validated by the UN Security Council. But I think that's very unsatisfactory, because if you remember the lengths to which Blair, British diplomatic service, and and to, to some extent, the Americans also went to to try to get that second authorizing resolution. It seems pretty clear that if you were comfortable with the legal basis on on the basis of the the first resolution, then why would why would you be so obsessed with that second resolution, which of course never went through? So I think I think it's a reasonable conclusion to draw that yes, um, the war is probably illegal. Certainly, its legality is questionable. Um, but you know that. In a way, that the challenge with that question is then: so, what follows from that? Well, do we do we decide that, that Blair and Bush are war criminals? Do we do we um, launch some process against them at you know the International Criminal Court? Well, I'm I'm not sure that uh, much benefit is to be gained from that. Um, but it is, of course, you know, we're in we are having this conversation in the light of a of a flagrantly illegal war that's taking place with Russia invading Ukraine, uh, war crimes on a mass scale taking place, those sorts of things. And of course, the ICC has put out an arrest warrant for Putin and, and some of his um, senior apparatchiks. And and I'm very conscious of, of the fact that if we if we talk about illegal wars in one context and then and then in another context, we, we sort of say, well, it may not be useful or valid to pursue this. Uh, that looks like double standards. But I, I think it's reasonable to say, well, one one war is is more flagrantly an abuse of international law than another, but another may turn out to have been illegal if you subject it to a sort of close analysis. Well, we're talking about your book, so I'll, I'll be gentle on that one because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we'll just leave it at that one. 
And we'll okay. move on. So you described being in places of danger from the counterinsurgency and uh, uh, and being in the front lines in, yeah. in uh, Iraq. Um, so now purely from the perspective of a writer, mm. uh, did you find writing about that experience difficult? Um, a little bit, yes, because you know ultimately the, these are very stressful experiences, and you um, you obviously have to sort of relive them a bit to write about. Um, but I felt I wanted the reason I wanted to include it was not not because of uh, particularly attaching credibility to my own story, because ultimately you know people could serve, for example, in the cabinet office in London and be intimately involved in. In, in a war and how it's prosecuted and, and those those people would have a lot of credibility also but I, I wanted to give an idea of responsibility because I think one of the things that I feel is not very well um, established in our sort of political and public culture is this concept of responsibility that that you know whether it's politicians or in fact senior officials taking responsibility for what goes with your decisions and living with those decisions. Uh, not everybody seems very interested in doing that. And in explaining what it's like to be in a war zone, it's partly to get across the point that when you make it when you make a decision to 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 start a war, you know this has a a, a myriad of of human consequences. And of course, my my, my experiences are as nothing to to the those of ordinary civilians in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Did you feel? um in any way challenged remembering those experiences i'm 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 thinking about you know the inner self memories yeah. reawakening things you'd rather not reawaken yeah i mean there's a bit of that definitely and also it was you know there are things that i didn't put in the book but i mean there there were there there was a a slice of time when of course the being in that that environment it's an all-encompassing type of of job, as you might imagine. That you you know you're very much twenty four seven, and so it's almost it's a bit like a, a a different person, a person you sort of you recognize and know, but you don't see it as yourself anymore. Uh, and also, you know, sadly, there are there are people who I worked with who 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 didn't come home. You know, that I people I know who died in helicopter crashes and things like that, um, and. And again, it, it's not for me. These are not terribly close friends or, or you know, sort of, um, but definitely people I, I had a lot of time for, a lot of respect for and and, and was very, very saddened by their, their loss. And so to some extent to try to uh, not memorialize them because that's not what this book is, but at least to, to, to sort of note their passing and, and, and hope that they're, they're not forgotten. You know, I think that, that was an important aspect of it for me. I, I thought it was interesting how you you wrote those sections without kind of referring to yourself as poor me, look what I've been through. And you, you seem to handle it um, in a very constructive way. Um, what, what interested me was, um, and you may or may not know, my um, academic supervisor was Richard Holmes. Oh, yeah. and Holmes um, went out to Iraq in, I think, 2005 or six, somewhere around that. Yeah. And, and later wrote Dusty Warriors. And it struck me that the pair of you seem to find um, the correct balance. You're seeing all of this murder, death, mayhem, um, and it, and you seem to both find the correct way to, to cope with that. I thought that was uh, very important. 
an important part of what really comes from reading your book. Well, thank you. I'm 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 very very touched by that. I I think I certainly think that that the um, and you'll know this because I I know from your work that you you've, you've got a a deep insight into sort of the the way that the military world operates. But in general, people, um, specifically the military, but also civilians who work alongside them in war zones, they they don't want to be seen as as sort of as subjects for pity. Um, not least because we we've all made choices in life. Uh, and choices have led us to those places, and and ultimately, almost almost everybody who ends up in that environment probably is to some extent doing so because they think it is a worthwhile activity, or that they as an individual can have some impact, positive impact. Of course, you know the, there are millions of other uh, motivations, but 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 that, at some level, that will be there for almost everyone. Um, and and again, so it's not you know you you don't write this as a sort of as a personal story of of loss and grief, but actually to try to make sense of of what it is you were doing and whether or not it it was it was worth it basically. Yeah. Okay. So if we can move on, and yes. I'll come back to that question which I I dodged before from your comments, which is Putin and Russia. Uh, does Britain bear any responsibility for the war in Ukraine? Yeah, well, I, I I think specifically for the war in Ukraine uh, and a decision that was made, um, you know, I think no, and I think it would be it would be uh, rather ridiculous uh, to to blame Britain. But I think then you have to, like any any good analyst, you've got to say, well, what's the context here? What what are the what are the wider issues? What what is a what is the sort of the global environment? And I think Britain does have some responsibility there. So as I write in the book, um, you know, that the events of 99 in Kosovo were very profoundly destabilizing on both Russia's sense of itself, but also the architecture of global order, um, because it, it the idea that NATO could carry out a fairly major military action without any kind of um, sort of UN or other overarching authorization um i think then the the events of um of the early 2000s where the prospect that ukraine would join nato but then not actually joining which is the, the worst of all worlds uh, uh that also contributed to it so so russia will have always felt um this nervousness about the prospect of U ukraine joining nato but ukraine doesn't benefit from from the you know increased defensive posture that that being a nato member uh allows it um and then and then also uh since 2014 in particular the the failure of western countries and of course britain is not alone not alone at all in this in this particular but the failure of western countries to really Put any major consequences onto Russia, um, and you know the city of London continuing to be very a very friendly place for Russian money. Um, these are all factors that will have contributed to uh, Putin's decision making and probably his feeling that he could get away with it. Okay, thank you very much for that, Arthur. Um, my next question is referring to the former Yugoslavian wars. Can there be a reconciliation in territories where genocide has been perpetrated? I think it's certainly much harder, perhaps, than people uh, like to realise. Um, and 
one of the challenges if you if you look at Yugoslavia or the former Yugoslavia today that the countries particularly Serbia and Kosovo uh there is this constant risk of a sort of slide back into conflict um having said that uh I think the the situation there you would rather you would rather see what we see uh between Serbia and Kosovo than for example what we see in Rwanda and the Democratic Democratic Republic of the Congo, where there is there is a live war that has really rumbled on um, for 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 decades. So um, I suppose I would say never say never, but I think it is as I mentioned, it, it requires a long investment of external resources, and I think that that's always a challenge. You know, countries lose interest um, and 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 they want to sort of move on to other things. Yeah. So Obviously, with what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment, it, it's kind of interesting me for with my my own genocidal work and the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that we bandy around these words like genocide, but we don't seem to understand a what they mean and then how how they are resolved and how there's reconciliation. And and I think um, it's an important. It was there in your in your book and i thought that's an important subject that we need to at least have a, a comment on yeah yeah well i agree and, and and one of my one of my thoughts about certainly about ukraine is that the um just in the minds of ordinary ukrainians to expect them to be comfortable with with a russia next door that it is anything other than completely uh sort of different to its current posture uh well it is an unreasonable expectation but of course that 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 it's it's not that i'm saying therefore it's easy to change russia that that's not that's not something that's that is in any way easy but i think we we have to recognize those those incredibly challenging conditions well from a historical perspective anyway there's layers of genocide and, yeah. and i think going all the way back to pre-1917 we, we it, it's an order there which is is going to have huge and horrendous problems for the future um yeah. and i just think we still haven't kind of come to terms with what the what the legacy of this war is going to be before we've even got there you know we're we're, we're, we're talking about rebuilding <laughs> how are we going to get these people to reconcile each other yes and and yeah. when, when you were talking about yugoslavia it struck me that we're back to the same problem yeah, of how to reconcile these different groups, these different nations, these different cultures, bring yeah. them together. Yeah. yeah. So let us move on. Um, Robin Cook coined the concept of the ethical foreign affairs. I, I love that one. Is it uh, is it wise for a nation to take such a an, eth an ethical and moral stance, especially in the age of authoritarianism? Um. Well, he certainly, you know, he he's been much criticised over the years. Um, I think, I think it is worth having, and I I think in a way, you know, he's not here now. Um, rest in peace and all that. I think if he were here now, he would say that he wanted. He he wasn't saying that it was a it was the guiding principle of foreign affairs, but it had to be a dimension, and I think he used that word dimension. That was there in 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 the considerations, and I think that's reasonable. Um, I I think you see the the real challenges with those sorts of questions 
uh, with one or two particular countries, and, and notably Saudi Arabia, which, of course, I write about in the book. In a way, it's easy to have an ethical dimension uh, in, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, certainly at this stage, maybe later it will be harder, but at this stage, we kind of know who the good guys are. Um, it's not easy with Saudi Arabia. I, I don't take a simplistic view that we should have no connection with them. Um, and for as long as we we live in a sort of hydrocarbon powered world, which we still do for the moment, um, Saudi Arabia is an incredibly important country. Um, having said that, uh, th there are questions about whether we will always uh, seek to enable their behaviours. And, and my view, certainly on the Saudi operation in Yemen, was that it was ill-conceived, uh, certainly um, carried out in ways that involved war crimes. And, and Britain effectively supported and assisted in ways that were, were unnecessary. But also, I, I don't really see what our national interest was. I don't really see, because it, the, there was this idea that Iran was taking over Yemen. Um, but if you analyse that, in, in depth, it, it doesn't really stand up. Um, so I think I to come back to the question, it, you have to accept that there are limitations, but I think to ignore the ethical dimension is 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 also uh, is troubling because other than that, you know, the simple concept of sort of humanity that underlies it, I think it it can also. Um, end up distorting what we think is in our national interest. So, you know, no doubt there will be people who say, well, it's in our cool, cool national interest to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, but if that does things like fuel a conflict, which then drives, you know, mass migration flows, or if that does things like empower certain uh, groups within Saudi Arabia who are themselves having a profoundly de destabilizing effect on a on a regional basis uh, and i think certainly mbs is doing that um then it then it's not it, it's not even a question of ethics it's a question of of international security when i came up with that question i was actually greatly influenced by thoughts about libya right and david cameron and yeah. i wondered if you have any thoughts on what cameron was trying to achieve which yeah I, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's that's another really good uh, case study because Cameron and, it, it, you know, there's an intriguing sort of bit of history, not repeating itself, but a rhyme of history. That So Cameron comes into power in 2010, contrasting himself from the Blair era uh, and, and very obviously the war in Iraq. Cameron uh, would look at that as something that he certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to repeat, wouldn't want to fall into that trap. And. And yet he sort of did. Now it was a different Libya was a very different war. You know, they didn't they didn't put troops on the ground. They didn't try to invade and occupy and 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 physically sort of involve themselves in the, creating the nation. But it was certainly the same basic idea of a a liberal interventionism of of a, an external power or in this case powers UK and France in particular with America as a reluctant partner. Um, judging that they could, they could um, sort of decide what would be good for the people of Libya, and and then and then bringing that to bear, um, and and doing so on this idea that there was that they were saving Libyans, particularly those in Benghazi, from a, an incipient massacre. Now, from from my understanding of this, and and you know the people who know more about Libya than I do seem to agree that that there really wasn't 
a serious threat of of this um of this kind of massacre this sort of uh, uh quasi genocidal moment in in Benghazi um what undoubtedly has happened is of course that the Libyan state has collapsed and that has had extraordinary ramifications in across Africa in in security terms into Europe in in terms of the um, again, the, the migration flows and the other instabilities that come, derive from that, and then and then on a geopolitical basis, because a, a, another profoundly um, sort of destabilizing effect on Putin. Where, you know, we're talking about some of the uh, factors that 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 led to um, the kind of the, the breakdown of the global order. So, uh, I guess the you if you think you are acting in the interests of of the people of Benghazi for example well one you've got to ask yourself is this right you know do we know enough do we know enough about what we're doing to to know this is the right course of action but two you know what ethics doesn't exist in a, in an isolation you know what are the ethics of destabilizing libya and 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 you know setting in tray in in train a a, a, um, a collapse of the sahel states you know so i think these that, that 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 must also have an ethical dimension. So I suppose that's um, trying to be holistic and more sophisticated about how we think of these things is something that perhaps we we need to do. Interesting. I'd like us to move on to China because you did mm. mention um, China in your book. Mm. Um, uh, from the post Hong Kong handover. Um, looking at the way Western hypocrisy has been chasing cheap profits and at the same time screaming human rights. Um, what do you think, will will Britain's influence, continual influence in, in that part of the world and with what's happened with Liz Trust attending in Taiwan, do you think there can be serious ramifications? Well, I, I think our, our influence certainly in the sort of Far East is 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 declining undoubtedly now of course there's been the AUKUS program you know the the Australian French uh, Australian US submarine program and to to the exclusion of the French which in itself was controversial um we we are we're not irrelevant in that part of the world but we're not highly relevant either and I think we we we, we have to accept that and of course that's part of the one of the challenges that Britain perhaps isn't very good at is making choices about you know are we a northwest european power and actually we need to put most of our effort into living with 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 that sort of geography and those trading conditions or are we are we a global player who who has a you know a, a role in in the pacific and in in um in east asia and so on um it's clear that uh global relations well no let me let me reframe that that it's clear that the the, the relationship with China and Western liberal democracies is going through a very troubled phase. And whilst there are people who are trying to redress the balance a little, and I think Rishi Sunak is one of them, uh, you, you could see his government trying to sort of tone down some of the more aggressive rhetoric that you see coming out of perhaps Washington, D.C. I think at the end of the day, uh, the problem that we have is that China has, seems to have taken a choice, which is that um, it's not that you have to take China on its own terms, because most countries have, have learned to deal with that, you know, that chi China will do what China wants inside China. But increasingly, China wants other countries to do what China wants. And whether it's interference in academic institutions, 
whether it's sort of state capture that you see um, via debt trap diplomacy, particularly in Africa, there's a lot of that going on, uh, or whether it's this uh, ongoing battle around um, sort of electronic and computer security, um, I you can understand the ways in which for for America, which still remains, you know, a global superpower, uh, it, it it is profoundly troubling to have to sort of deal with China uh, increasingly seeking to control the sort of global environment. But where the the challenge for Britain is, of course, we're not a decision maker. You know, we're we're in in the end of the day on this. On this issue, I think above all on glo- global issues, we're in a kind of slipstream, and and we may not really like the direction of travel that America's gone in, um, but I think we we have to sort of accept it. And, and I think you see that also with other EU countries. Now, of course, President Macron uh, arguably is trying to pursue an independent path, but Ursula von der Leyen, as sort of representative of the EU appears to be much closer to Washington's uh, perspective on this. So I think a lot of a lot of middling but important countries are are trying to make these rather difficult decisions around what we do with China. Just from a from a different perspective. Yeah. Would would you appreciate that Chinese the Chinese perhaps consider Britain as a colonial nation? A oh, colonizing nation? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that influences and... Chinese attitude. Sorry to talk over you. Yeah, no, sure. That I no, I I think that's right. And and clearly, you know, we we had a relatively significant colony in China not that long ago. You know, I mean, I I I had a, had just just um, graduated when when the handover happened in Hong Kong. Um, so we're talking about something which is not, you know, we're not talking about colonial history in the Victorian era. We're talking about it in in the New Labour era. Um, and in that sense, uh, it is not surprising. That China sees Britain in a slightly different light that it might see, you know, for example, France. Uh, and then let us not forget that only in in the last couple of years, um, a huge number of Hong Kong citizens, holders of so-called BNO passports, have come to this country, and they've done that because China broke a deal that it made. It, it, it basically tore up a deal to maintain a democratic, you know, the two systems in the in Hong Kong. Uh, a democratic system in Hong Kong. Um, so these are all uh, reasons why China may view Britain with greater suspicion than it views other, certainly sort of European powers. Um, and it, it, whether or not though that that requires us to pursue a, a largely different policy, I'm I'm not really sure because I think um, there may be a predisposition certainly on the Chinese side. To, to see us in that colonial context. But I don't think that changes China's behavior, which is this sort of aggressive mercantilism backed up with an increasingly powerful sort of military and in kind of intelligence apparatus. I mean, I, I found it interesting back in the day when I worked in the Far East and I, I wrote a report, having been in the area for the Tiananmen Square events and, oh, wow. and having been in Taiwan and Hong Kong mm. um, and having confronted um, bosses who were People's Republic of China bosses, right? Um, and and listening to members of the the People's Republican Army representatives telling us, you know, Britain needs to keep its nose out, while at the same time um, appearing to build a strong relationship with Russia. Mm. I, I came back to Britain and, and thought that we didn't seem to have a 
Far East policy. We, no. we didn't seem to understand really what was going on. We have good people out there, good diplomats, yeah. knew some very good, interesting diplomats out there, but there didn't seem to be a national policy for the Far East. No, and, and I think I think that's always been a challenge um, because partly, you know, the, the, the sort of the geography and, and, and the, the linguistic barriers and so on. But I think I think also because um, and it's a classically British thing, we want to sort of have things both ways. And, and, and in a way that, you know, I write about that in the book that Oz, you have George Osborne um, thinking that there's an uncomplicated way of dealing with China. You just open all the doors. You say, come on in, come and invest come and build nuclear power stations. We, we won't make any trouble for you in the South China Sea um, and so on. But at a certain point, um, that that policy is unsustainable. And, and I'm not saying that because of, of, of necessarily as a sort of prissiness around standing up to Chinese um, uh, kind of un, undermining global order. But ultimately, you, you can't be friends with America and hold that policy. And that's really kind of what I identified in the book, that the Americans got to the stage where they were questioning the entire sort of Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance because of our willingness to bring Chinese tech right into our national communications infrastructure. So at that point, um, you know, th this, this is becoming an irrational policy. Well, I, I noticed with the Americans that they, 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 they seem to have um, a similar problem. You, you, they're, they're suggesting that China is the most favoured nation status and, and at the same time criticising everybody for, for doing business with the Chinese. Yeah, <laughs> the, well, that's whole... right. And certainly, uh, you know, American consumers are, are um, it hooked on Chinese, uh, you know, cheap, cheap electronics, as as everybody else is, you know, no, not exclusively. But and of course, that's, you know, we can go back to the whole sort of Bill Clinton, um, you know, the, the policies of getting China into the WTO and 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 the sort of the massive increase of, of globalization. Um, and and the after effects of that, including deindustrialization, which has led to you know a sort of more kind of nationalist populism with people like Trump. So I suppose you know all of these things have a longer tail than most people at the time recognised. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you. So can we move on um, and talk about Britain and America? Yeah. And um, my question here is, given that you know American threads are so strong in your book is to ask the question, can Britain safely interfere in global affairs if America crawls further into isolation? Yeah, well, I I think, um, you know, we speak a year out from an American, well, a year and a half out from an American election, which could well uh, return an, an isolationist, probably Republican president, whether that's Trump or someone else, almost unimportant, because I, I think the isolationism has taken quite a strong hold in the, the current Republican Party, um, it is it is therefore a matter of some frustration that we see across Europe um, a lot of people talking about Europe needing to build up its own strategic autonomy, and of course the events in Ukraine. You know, you you don't need you couldn't ask for a stronger illustration of the need. Uh, people have seemed very able to to talk about this, but less able to act. And so 
coming back to your question, Britain obviously has had a historically very close relationship with America, particularly on sort of military and, and security issues, intelligence issues. Um, if America is is less interested, if if you have a an isolationist America, perhaps even America that is um, reducing its NATO commitments and those sorts of things, uh, we we are going to have to uh, decide how we uh, recast our alliances, uh, for example, across Europe. But but this is where you know e even for someone such as myself who is inclined to a kind of European integrationist approach, uh, that there's you can't um, deny the depressing fact that Europe in general doesn't spend enough on on its defence. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but um, even now in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion, some of the wealthiest countries in Europe, countries like Norway and Denmark, uh, are still, um, you know, very much uh, a long way short of the than sort of NATO target for defence. So I think. Um, I think if America goes into that sort of isolationist po poise, um, we are we are going to have to work very hard at at getting Europe. And and this is really an, a, a, in a NATO context, probably uh, as much as in an EU context. But, you know, there are now other forums that exist, including this new European political community. We're going to have to work very hard Um with with European partners because it doesn't seem to me look you know there are others there's, there's Canada there's Australia but you know the, realistically uh, we we have to start with our neighbourhood I think there was some talk some time ago of a, a, a kind of an informal alliance and North Atlantic alliance of Britain America and Canada hmm. do you think that's realistic I I don't think it is particularly I mean again you know it's it's interesting to note you know Canada which has a large Ukrainian diaspora has been politically a very, very strong supporter of Ukraine, um, is is not particularly uh, generous with its military support, and its and its own defence investment is is pretty thin. Um, and I think, and this is not to single out Canada for criticism. There's plenty about Canada that we can admire and celebrate. But I think that the issue is that we. Um, Ultimately, you, you you'll never find that sort of perfect fit in in a way, and 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 um, you know we we can we can talk about Germany, Germany with its Seiten vendor, which is now um, supposedly sort of transforming its strategic posture, but it's still happening rather slowly. Uh, I think there's a very high chance that if there were an end to the conflict in Ukraine. The Germans would want to go right back to selling stuff to Russia, to buying Russian energy, and so on. So I think I think we have to accept that that these are things that require sort of constant vigilance, constant action, constant um, kind of remediation. Uh, and and then the other thing, perhaps not to forget, is that the the sort of Central European powers, which are rising fast, and you know, and in a way, the Ukraine conflict is pushing that process, is accelerating that process. So a country like Poland. Is going to have a huge military and be a very significant strategic player across Europe. I mean, it already is significant, but it's going to be even more significant. Uh, and and as much as you know, we look at countries like Canada, which is which, of course, loads of good reasons to to, to work with Canada. We we need to find reasons to work with countries like Poland and and Slovakia and so on. Um, so these are, as I say, I think you you it's a sort of constant process of adjustment. Just talking about the British-American relationship, I mean, people obviously 
call it either a special relationship or yeah. it's not a special relationship. Yeah. But from you within the diplomatic service, was to serve in America something special? Um, well, I I never actually did a diplomatic posting. In, no, in I didn't mean it in that sense, yeah. but within the yeah. within the culture of the foreign office. Yeah, was yeah it, okay. Um, I mean, I would say I think the people who I certainly spent time in Washington around the embassy, you know, visiting and so on, and certainly for a lot of people at that embassy, uh, they they felt personally invested in this relationship and that it was probably the most important embassy in the world but but what i would also add is that certainly some of the more sophisticated you know people in that scenario knew that then the french diplomats in washington felt exactly the same and that was really the point that any country that had a an effective diplomatic service would put some of their best people in washington dc and so that that the, the idea, and this is where you know you can have a special relationship, but the special relationship it really I think is a is a defunct concept, right? But there wasn't there wasn't sort of if you're in if you're in America you're in the Super League, whereas elsewhere you're kind of in lesser leagues. It wasn't that kind of a difference culturally. I mean, I'm um, sorry to be a bit pushy I, on this, but I just find it fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I saw themselves. Yeah, I, I, I think I think for certain roles there would have been, and certainly if you're the British ambassador in Washington D.C., that's pretty much the top of the tree. I mean, you could argue over the sort of Washington, Paris, um, in the old days Brussels and the UN in New York and so on. There are you know a small list of very significant jobs, but I think most people would would say it's reasonable to argue that that D.C. is is the top of the tree, and therefore. For some of the other roles in the embassy as well, yes, it it is you know super league is, is not a bad concept, you know, it's not a bad description. Having said that, um, I think there would be that there would always be room for for debate because I mean, interestingly, you know, in my time, you in traditionally the 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 biggest embassy in the world had tended to be the one in Washington D.C., but then in in the time that I was in the Foreign Office. It was it was one at one point it was Baghdad at another point it was Kabul and those were you know twenty years earlier if you'd said Britain's biggest embassy would be in Baghdad people would have laughed you out of the room so I think I think in a way that a rather unstable period in global affairs which of course is sort of sits at the underlying theme of my book um, it it plays out in various ways including in that thing that you would. Uh, the sort of traditional idea of diplomacy being rather fixed in certain global cities and, and DC being definitely one of them uh, was was perhaps sort of slightly torn apart by by these these unexpected conflicts. I, I find that interesting because in in all that little commentary there, we haven't mentioned Beijing and we haven't mentioned Moscow. Yeah. That's a very good point. So I think certainly Moscow, um, you know, post 91, Moscow slightly ossified. And and I would say and, and the culture within sort of foreign service of people who were specialists on Russia, everyone respected them because it was clearly a very important uh, country, a very rich culture and, and also quite a hard language to learn. People, everyone respected that. But I think it was seen as a bit of a niche activity, and and maybe that you know that in itself has sort of come back to bite us in the last couple of years. Similarly, Beijing, I think um, it it 
it felt like a bit of a sort of a kind of a niche specialism rather than a kind of central pillar of our foreign policy. It, it does seem in the in the swirl of social media at the moment that the old skills which have been prominent in the Cold War times where people understood the Russians, they understood the logic of the Russians, they could work out what was going on to a similar extent with China. All of that seems to have gone. <laughs> where have they all gone? <laughs> well, I, I mean, one of the one of the things that, that's in the book, and certainly I feel quite strongly about, is that this this idea of um, having a sort of cadre of expertise, both formal experts in sort of people you know who maybe have academic expertise, but also more professional expertise. I think the Foreign Office has lost a lot of that. I think it it has fallen into a um, a, a, a kind of erroneous idea that kind of management and corporate competence may be more important than than rich sort of knowledge and expertise of working in foreign countries and managing those complex uh, foreign relationships. Uh, and so I think I think that is that is, you know, had an impact on our effectiveness diplomatically. OK, I'm um, um, very kind of you. Thank you. I'm going to go very quickly now to the last question. Yeah. Um, which is in the introduction you open with the Iraq war and referred to a bomb attack after which you recalled, I could no longer deny to myself that the Allied powers unleashed a terrible whirlwind. Uh, what was the denial in your story? Yeah, so I, I um, when, when the Iraq war happened, I had a lot of misgivings, but I, I was not, you know, on the streets protesting and I was not um, somebody who believed that it would necessarily be disastrous because I felt that it was possible that um, that you know Western powers would be able to ameliorate the situation ultimately because of you know huge resources, massive economies, all the rest of it. And also, you know, let's not forget Saddam Hussein was a terrible man and and you know getting him out of the way might not have been in principle a bad idea. Um, so to, to me, there was a, there was an element of denial that I, I arrived to work there um, at a point when things were definitely going badly wrong and still hoping that maybe even if you accepted that the war itself was a mistake, that by being there, we could make things better. And, and ultimately that 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 denial failed. You know, I, I realized that the week we probably couldn't make things better. I see. Arthur, thank you very much. What would you like to tell us about your future writings and before we go? Um, well, thank work, in the, work on the plate? Yeah, um, well, th thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so, uh, well, one thing is uh, I'm also a presenter of a podcast, Doomsday Watch, which involves a little bit of writing. Uh, and, and, and that, for those who aren't familiar, is a sort of geopolitics podcast and, and hopefully uh, maybe of interest to some of your listeners. Uh, I am also what I would like to write is a book on uh, the geopolitics of climate change, which I feel is something that is is not that well understood. People talk a lot about the ecological aspects of climate change and 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 what is clearly a ecological tragedy unfolding, but the way that it will change global power relations, I think, is a is a really significant and important topic, and that's something I I hope to be able to publish a book about. Excellent. Arthur, thank you very much for being my guest today. And it's been a huge pleasure, Philip. Thank you. Marvellous book. Thank you very much.